ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bring forth fruit in old age and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Now, in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us stand together and sing hymn number 581. Please be seated. Jason, can I ask you, has the AC ever turned on? I don't know whether I'm overheating from the first service or if the, if the uh, AC is not on. Okay, thank you. We'll see if I can get through this sermon with the coat on. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. We close out this great chapter of Hebrews before we take up another great chapter, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hear the word of God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle for uh, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this text, one which has uh, a special relevance to our own times. And we ask you that we might, as a church, have ears to hear what you have to say to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I just prayed, and as I hope to to say, this is a passage which I've I've come to see has a special relevance to us. Uh, And so I'm excited to preach it, but at the same time I confess that uh, as I first uh, looked at it, and as I've looked at it over the years... It is a passage which I've tended to overlook, if only because it is uh, surrounded by such remarkable passages, uh, such as what we had in the prior text, uh, the passage concerning apostasy, a very striking statement. And then following this text, uh, there is the great chapter, chapter 11 uh, of faith. But considered on its own, it immediately becomes clear that it is itself remarkable in its own way worthy of its own special study and treatment. The main burden of this passage is that, after having just warned us of the dangers and the perils of apostasy, uh, the exhortation then becomes here, following that, we must not look or turn back, but press forward. That is, considering apostasy as a warning post on our journey to the heavenly city, beware, go, go not down this path, for many have gone and never returned, We stop and we consider, and then we are bid at that moment not to turn back but to press on. That's what these verses are, verses 32 through 39. And they do so, uh, they bid us again not to turn back but to press on in a very striking and remarkable way. We are, he says, nearly at the completion of our journey. We have nearly entered into our heavenly rest, where joys await us forevermore in the presence of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and our mediator. What a glorious inheritance awaits us if only we press on a little further and do not turn back as with the apostate. So as always, the admonitions are perfectly timed and balanced in Scripture. After just blasting us with the terrible thought of apostasy, the fearful expectation of judgment for the one who turns back, having tasted the good things of the gospel, who tramples them underfoot as having no value, having spoken of that, in the prior text, he, qu- he quickly here goes on to speak in a more positive fashion. Not as though to soften the blow, but in order for us to realize that, as he said in chapter 6, he is confident here of better things concerning his church, as I am of you. If you remember, after what was said in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, just as we found in chapter 10, 
the man for whom repentance is denied. A thought almost too terrible to bear. He quickly adds in verses 9 through 11, and here is where I'll, where I'll read those verses, or 9 through 12. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those uh, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Consider the apostate, be warned off such a sad state, but he says, we're confident of better things concerning you. And so he does something likewise here. He speaks here of his confidence concerning these Christians, especially in verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. You see his confidence about this church. I don't really think you are apostate, he says, though perhaps some individuals are. But here again, as in chapter 6, his message is to remind them of past attainments and grace, to spur them on to better things. Indeed, in this, there's also a kind of subtle rebuke, or perhaps not so subtle, whereby he suggests that they have fallen into a lower plane of spirituality than they previously enjoyed. When they ought to have reached higher and further in spiritual attainments by now, you've gone down the path, you haven't quite turned back. But ought you not to have made it further than you have thus far? So the message is in both places, let us press on. Let us realize what we have and what is promised to us and not turn back or grow lazy until we have possessed what is promised to us at last in fullness. That is until we have at long last entered into heaven itself. We are in effect, if you remember from chapter three, still in the wilderness. We have yet to enter the promised land. Let us be zealous, he says, to inherit what is promised to us along with the fathers, as we will see in chapter 11. And as he spoke of in chapter 6, those who persevered by faith and inherited what was promised to them. Yet so unlike that wilderness community that fell because of their unbelief and disobedience and failed to enter the promised land. One of the things that tempts us to turn back, as we will see in this passage, is the presence of trials. Certainly this was true of the wilderness community. It was true also of these first century Christians. They had experienced, we read in verses 32 through 34, the loss of property. They were experiencing the reproach of the world. And in the case of some, as in the case of the author here, imprisonment for the gospel. Professing faith in Christ proved for them to be a terrible trial. They were experiencing exactly what many of us fear is coming for us. They were being canceled. They were made to be outcasts of society. There was no place for them now that they were Christians. And it came at a huge practical earthly cost. And I think this has, as I indicated earlier on, a special relevance to our own times. Where it seems such things could befall us at any time. Or at any rate, the danger is certainly on the mind of many faithful Christians. More and more we feel trials are on the horizon. That there will be, in fact, a cost to professing Christ. These are especially trying, testing times. The temptation now, as for as for Israel in the wilderness, 
as well as these readers of this letter in the first century, is to turn back. It is to give up. To just stop coming to church, among other things. To wait until things we hope grow easier. What I'm realizing is that, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said in a sermon he preached during the outbreak of World War II, quoting here a paraphrase from Ian Murray's biography of Lloyd-Jones. And if you know anything about World War II in in London, uh, you'll know that it has strange similarities to our own day. The effect of the bombing raids of London was that it emptied the churches. Here is Murray's paraphrase. The war would soon test the real spiritual position of all churchgoers. And I especially like that way of putting it. You notice he didn't say of all Christians. We all like to think of ourselves as Christians, even the man who doesn't bother to come to church. I'm a Christian, he'll tell you. But you see, he says what it's testing is our relationship to the church. Just as the war was emptying the churches. Just as the mighty Westminster Cathedral, which could fit. 2,000 or more people could barely find 100 people to come to worship, or maybe it was 200, something like that. Well, that's exactly how I feel about the present state of things. Suddenly we are being tested, not merely as Christians in a general sense, but specifically as churchgoers. It is our relationship to the church that is being tested and revealed. Our priorities and our commitments are being revealed. It is becoming clear who the real Christians are. Going on with the quote, And here, quoting him directly, he says, without a doubt, we have all of us been slack for various reasons. And the first call upon us is to repentance. And so that is the danger. If you look at what was happening here in the first century or in the 20th century or in our own day, slackness first, a general malaise and laziness which comes over the church. Then in the presence of fresh trials, exasperation. And finally, in the case of some, a turning back leading to apostasy. Let us see, our our author says, let us see and feel the danger of this. And let us go on to obtain what is promised to us, not turning back as some have done. Soon we will see in chapter 11 how this is what characterized the life of the fathers. I'm talking about Abraham and all the, the patriarchs and the, the fathers we read of in the Old Testament as recounted in Hebrews chapter 11, that they obtained nothing that was promised to them in this life. Yet by faith, they not only began to enjoy these heavenly blessings in advance after a spiritual fashion, but they also endured many things until they uh, came to possess them in solid existence. Uh, listen to how he puts it uh, in some of those verses. Verse 13. Chapter 11, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Verse 16, but now they desire a better country that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They pass through this world looking for what was promised to them, but never finding it except by faith. And at last, as I say, in solid existence, when God welcomed them in to the very place they sought to be, a heavenly city. Even more strikingly, at the end of that chapter, we read of the terrible things many had suffered. Others were tortured. This is the middle of verse 35, not accepting uh, deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. 
They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. At least not in this world, he's saying. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All of these, he says, were sustained by thoughts of what awaited them. And this is what kept them from giving up, though they suffered greatly. And so he's calling the church to the same thing here. And let, let us see how he proposes we do this. There are many useful suggestions that he makes. The first of which is that we might recall the former days, verse 32, in which he says you were illumined, that is, when you were converted, and then you began to struggle so much. He isn't uh, recalling a happier time of their lives, at least from a worldly sense, but from a spiritual sense he was. He says, when you were first converted, you were full of zeal, you were full of joy, you were prepared to suffer anything for Christ. Do you not remember what it was like then? How happily you gave up these things as though they were nothing compared to the glories which awaited you. Bring these things to mind, he says. Reminding us of what he says in chapter 6, verse 10. Again, in that passage where he is encouraging them after having spoken of apostasy, he says, God is not unjust to forget your work. Only here it is, not God remembers, but you ought to remember. And there's great value in remembering, since forgetfulness is a means of departing from Christ. Something we find Christ saying to the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation underscores this point. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. In essence, he says, you've forgotten. And so he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first work. Your, uh, the first works, or else I will come to you and quick, uh, quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, lest you forget. And so we ought to remember what it was that set us out on this journey in the first place. Look back on our conversions. What a happy day that was. And so he says to them, oh, the persecutions you endured when you first professed Christ. How gladly you gave up all your possessions. Go back and remember what it was that made you do this. Namely, the loveliness of Christ. The inestimable value you assigned to his person and his sacrifice. Have you so quickly forgotten? Such thoughts stir the heart to former devotion. I often tell the men that the way to fall back in love with their wives is to remember why they fell in love with them in the first place. Supposing they've come into a time where their hearts have grown cool. Grown cool. Think back, I say, on former days, how fond you were of her. Let such thoughts stir your heart to love her again. And doubly so of our love of Christ. If you should ever fall out of love with him, beginning for whatever reason to value him less than you once did, it is time to consider again what it was that set you out in the first place down this dangerous path of discipleship. What it was that made you so happy to embrace the scorn and derision of the world, if only you might possess him, as Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 3. Oh, I gladly gave up all, Paul says, if only I might come to be found in him. 
Do you think it was madness that drove you to such extremes? Or was it that you saw then clearly what sin has now blinded you from seeing? Go back, he says, and consider and see if you cannot recall what it was that made you such good soldiers of Jesus Christ. One thing you knew was that whatever you might lose in this world for Christ, you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Verse 34. And what can compare to that? The glories and the joys of heaven that await us. Calvin puts it well when he says, Joyfully then did they endure the plundering of their goods, not because they were glad to find themselves plundered, but as their minds were fixed on the recompense, they easily forgot the grief occasioned by the present calamity. And indeed, wherever there is a lively perception of heavenly things, the world with all its allurements is not so relished that either poverty or shame can overmind the whelm with grief, uh, overwhelm the mind with grief. If then we wish to bear anything for Christ with patience and resigned minds, let us accustom ourselves to a frequent meditation on that felicity in comparison with which all the goods, the good things of the world are nothing but refuse. Accustom your minds, he says, to think often of the joys and the glories of heaven and your attachment to this world will not be so great. You will not be so sad if even you should find that you should be plundered for the name of Christ and how we might obtain this state. I will come to later. But now in the second place, the second suggestion we see in verse 35, do not cast away your confidence. Recall the former days for a second. Do not cast away your confidence. Here we see, as Philip Edgecombe Hughes says, I think this is an interesting and almost surprising way to put it. Of all desertions, and remember apostasy is what he's arguing against, of all desertions, apostasy is the most unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. It's about the most foolish thing you could possibly do. What folly it is, our author is saying, to give up so much and to have gone so far only to turn back in the end. Especially seeing that we were so near to obtaining what we sought, namely a great reward in heaven. Admittedly, what causes this to happen is a loss of confidence, which we are apt from time to time to lose. Lacking the certainty and the confidence we formerly possessed, we begin to waver in our profession and to consider turning back. This is a temptation which is common to every pilgrim. In his journey to the heavenly city, none can escape having this thought from time to time. But here, let the weary pilgrim see what folly this would be. Let him consider how far he has gone and how little of the journey is left for him to obtain what he seeks. The truth is, for all of us, young and old alike, that but a little time will pass until we reach the end of our journey. Look at what he says in verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Do you realize how close we are? It won't be long now. Either we will pass into the heavenly Jerusalem through death or Christ will gather him, uh, gather us rather to himself by his coming. And how tragic it would be for us to throw this away just as we were about to get there to fall and turn back just a few, a few short steps of entering in to reach the Jordan and to stop there. How sad. How unreasonable do you see the folly in this? Does this thought not awaken in your souls a desire to go on just a little more in order to complete your earthly pilgrimage? 
So he says in verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that you so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. There is need for endurance in doing the will of God. None have ever received the promise by any other means. A life of disobedience and rebellion to God is not capable of doing so. Israel, you may remember, in the wilderness fell not only because she was unbelieving, but because she was disobedient. Chapter 3, verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Do you notice how he mingles these two things together? The unbelieving, hardened heart is the heart of wickedness and sin. Indeed, to quote Calvin again, because of this, he says, it hence appears that confidence is the foundation of a godly life. And I would add to that, it is a godly life that leads us on to the heavenly Jerusalem. Equally, what he means is that those who cast away their confidence cannot be holy. Their lives will ever be marred by sin and unbelief. So there's need for endurance or patience, he says. Again, we need not wait long, but a little while and we will receive the promise. God is not slow in fulfilling what he says, so you won't have to wait long. There is only need for patience for just a little while longer. Look at verses 36 and 37 together. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. But connected with this in the third place as the third suggestion. As well as the final one is the need for faith. Verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. There is your quotation from Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. Much as uh, we find in other places, such as Romans chapter one. And as we'll soon see, the emphasis here becomes faith, not only in this verse and the next, but also in chapter 11. The major theme to be developed in that chapter is the life of faith, the hallmark of the Christian life, especially considered as pilgrims journeying on to the heavenly city. Is faith. I've quoted Pilgrim's Progress to you twice now in connection with. Uh, the apostasy passages reading to you both times. One of the interpreters room, the man in the iron cage, a woeful picture there of apostasy. But let, let me take you to another room in the interpreter's home and see what we find there. And again, I read it in full, though it's a shorter passage. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where a fire was burning against a wall. And one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it, yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire, notwithstanding, burn higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason of that. So he had him about the back side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, of which he did also continually cast, but secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ, who continually with oil 
uh, the, the oil of grace ma- maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this this work of grace is maintained in their soul. Well, as the man in the iron cage was a fitting picture of apostasy, so this is a fitting picture of what I closed with last time. And as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, that the exhortations to the exhortations are added encouragements. And we discover why it is that we are not apostate and why it is that we are sustained in our walks, though we are tempted to fall. That Christ is the one in his priesthood who supplies the believer with grace to help in time of need. Chapter 4, verse 16. Meeting him and supporting him in the hour of temptation, just when he feels he is about to fall and perhaps there turn back. And just when it would seem Satan is about to put out the fire. Only there Satan himself is perplexed to find that he cannot put out the flame. For he does not see the secret work of grace whereby Christ supplies the fire with the oil of grace. Refreshing and supporting the believer against Satan's assaults. And what is this work of grace but a continual stirring up of faith in the soul? A bringing the believer not only to faith, but from faith to faith. As Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, quoting the same verse from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, reminding us that as faith leads to our justification and reconciliation, so it is that grace which leads us on to heaven itself. Christ leading us on from faith to faith. You see, Habakkuk is also saying that faith is the life of the believer. The just, he says, shall live By faith. So it is faith which makes the believer one with Christ. And so it is faith which causes the believer to live. And to obtain favor with God. Again verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back my soul is no pleasure in him. And so he later says in verse 6 of chapter 11. That without faith it is impossible to please God. And faith we see. Is not our own work. It is, let us see, a work of grace. It is a fire which is kept burning by the continual supply of oil from Christ himself. He sees to it that the believer keeps on believing, even until he gets to heaven, and not in any other way. But to look at it from the other side, recognizing that in verses 38 and 39, he is presenting to us a contrast. What is a drawing back but a life devoid of faith? And so we should see these two things as polar opposites. The one who has faith is kept safe by the gracious ministry of Jesus Christ in heaven. And he will surely inherit what is promised to him. Whereas the one who draws back in apostasy is he who lacks faith and in prideful self-sufficiency desires nothing from Christ. It is impossible, beloved, to overstate, as we see here and as we will see going into chapter 11, the centrality of faith to the Christian life, especially as he is considered as a pilgrim journeying on to the heavenly city. And so he says, as a fitting conclusion, but also as a way of opening us up to what he has to say in chapter 11, we are not, verse 39, of those who draw back to perdition, we are not apostate. We will not be lost, he says, but we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul, those who, like the fathers, Have faith. 
Faith, he says, is what brings us into heaven at last. Just as faith is what brings Christ into our possession now. Faith is to the saving of the soul, he says, verse 39. Saving us from the perdition that awaits those who draw back. Faith, he says in the next verse, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then in verse 2, by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And finally, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And on and on he goes, as we will see. Faith alone is able to bring us to the end of the journey. Just as it is alone able to bring us into heaven now. By faith, how does he put it? We are able to draw near, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Faith brings us to heaven now. It will bring us into heaven at last. If you ask... How does the believer enjoy communion with Christ now? My answer would be by faith. And if you were to ask, how does the believer comprehend and keep up a lively sense of the glorious things that await him? My answer would be the same. As faith gives birth to hope. And from the other side, as I've already suggested, Christ's ministry to us as our great high priest in heaven is one primarily of granting to us a lively faith which lays hold of these promises. And welcomes them from afar. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13. And the more lively such faith is in the heart of the believer. The more easily he suffers loss in this world. The more boldly he will profess Christ. The greater his attainments in holiness and spiritual maturity. And the more certain his salvation will become to him. Obtaining nothing less than a full assurance of hope until the end. Chapter 6 verse 11. Likewise. As Calvin says, patience is born by faith. And so if you were to ask, what is it that makes us wait with endurance? The answer once more is faith. That is what we will see in chapter 11. All these endured the most grievous things, but nothing could shake them off their profession. Nothing could cause them to turn back because they had faith. Yes, let us see, he says. That the just shall live by faith, not only indicating how it is that they are justified, a truth which is surely uh, most important for us to grasp. The believer is justified by faith alone. But let us equally see that the life of the justified believer is one which ascends and progresses on to heaven from faith to faith. And that the secret engine Which drives him forward and upward is the oil of grace poured into his soul from his heavenly intercessor. Let this be our confidence, beloved, that we belong to Christ and that he will never leave or forsake us. That just as he says here in verse 39, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And of those who do draw back into apostasy, let us say with John, they departed from us because they were never of us. All of this is needful for us to see, beloved. The Christian life covers a very short span of time, and soon we will be in eternity. I wonder how often such thoughts fill our minds and cause us to wonder. Can we really say, as he says here in verse 34, of them in their former days, we have a better and an enduring possession for ourselves in heaven? 
That we are, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, storing up treasure not here on earth, but in heaven. For such is the life of the pilgrim. Or are we so preoccupied with this world that we cannot bear the loss of the smallest possession for the sake of Christ? Yes, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is time for Christians to take stock. To begin again to examine themselves and to consider, do I have faith? And not only that, but what sins ought I to be repenting of? Soon our author will say in the same spirit, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, again speaking of the Christian life as a journey on into heaven. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles or ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Do you see him there again, as here, encouraging weary pilgrims to go on a little further until we obtain what we are seeking? And so you see, it all fits together. The message of the, of the book of Hebrews is one and the same. It is all encourage, encouragement to us, seen as pilgrims. Christ has gone before us into heaven, and he is leading us there. But many trials and temptations lie in the way. And nothing will so ensnare us as, as sin. The question which we have then, as we pause and we wonder, how can we ever hope to run with endurance without becoming hopelessly ensnared? You have to repent, he says. You have to have faith which looks to Jesus. See him as he went before us into this world and suffered many things here. And then see him now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who suffered such hostility from sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And realize equally, as he will go on to say in that same chapter, that the trials themselves are producing this very grace in you. All of the trials that you face along the way. They too are like oil which drips down from heaven. Soon you will be made better and more, uh, more fit to inhabit heaven for all eternity. Do not allow yourself to become embittered or discouraged because things are hard now. Let your faith look to your heavenly father who chastises you with reason. So that you may, he says, become partakers of his holiness. So that you might be more fit to dwell with him for all eternity in heaven. And let us see once more of ourselves and those who are joined with us in the same conflict that we are not. Verse 39. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Beloved, the Christian life ought to be one of this kind of certainty. Not in the absence of trials, but in the presence of them. The Christian life ought to reach up, not to a feeble faith, but to a full assurance of faith or a full assurance of hope until the end. We ought to constantly be striving and reaching up to the highest attainment we can possibly attain in this life. And let us strive for this kind of certainty about ourselves as stated here and our brothers in verse 39. And let us strive, as we will soon consider in great detail, to have faith. Above all, to have faith, one which is ever growing and increasing in the presence of Satan's constant assaults. Amen. And let us now come to the table.
the words of institution as we find them in Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of, this, of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I don't have too much to say about that. Uh, one of the, the privileges of doing this weekly is I don't have to say all that much. We get to consider it week after week. I also don't want to be saying the same thing over and over. But uh, the, the thing which we ought to notice about the Lord's Supper uh, and something which struck me many years ago is that it's as a means of grace, it is a means of assurance. That's the point here. Uh, and that really is the point of the book of Hebrews as well. Not a meager faith, but a triumphing faith. And anything less than that, uh, well, it ought to be rebuked uh, with Jesus in a sense. He's saying, where is your faith? Uh, so he is helping us to retire unto a full assurance of hope until the end. And anything less than that, it does not befit the Christian in this world. Uh, and it's unlikely to meet all of the discouragements that we will face along the way as pilgrims. And uh, the more likely we will be to stop and to consider turning back. So how is it a means of assurance? Well, the language which we find, especially in Romans chapter four, is that it is a seal, not only a sign, but it is a seal of that which is promised. And the purpose of a seal on a letter is, in essence, to guarantee that what the author is saying, uh, not only that he himself has said it, but let us be certain that we will come to receive what is promised. And so the Lord has not only promised us salvation in Jesus Christ, but he is sealing that to us. He is assuring us and seeking to give us certainty through this means. I think it was the Heidelberg Catechism that said uh, something like, just as surely as uh, the, the bread I hold in my hand is bread and the, the cup I hold is wine, so surely was Christ uh, sacrificed for sinners. No less certainly, uh, only more so. And so uh, let us seek to find certainty at the table. It is a place of refreshing for weary pilgrims. And let us more and more learn to see ourselves like that. I think that will be the inescapable conclusion from Hebrews chapter 11, as we'll soon see. And you may even get tired of me saying it, but I'll be saying it an awful lot lately uh, or in the coming weeks. So refreshment for weary souls. That's what we find here. At the same time, I would warn any who are impenitent or unbelieving not to come to the table. So I'm bound to do as a minister. I must warn off uh, you because... Uh, there, just as salvation is found at the table, so too is judgment uh, and of a terrible kind. We are warned in Hebrew, in First uh, Corinthians 10 and 11 that uh, bad things come to the one who trifles with sacred things. And so I would warn you not to do that. But if in Christ you find the hope of heaven, then I encourage you and I bid you to come and to come with faith. And with those words, let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We praise you. Uh, that by this means you are increasing our faith and enabling us slowly but surely and little by little uh, to reach higher attainments in grace, uh, especially the assurance which we seek and the certainty as to the things which are promised to us and of getting to them at last. Uh, the truth is, as we saw, oh God, and we need to remember that, but a short time uh, is left, just a little while. Oh, that we could see it instead of so often saying it's so long. When will it come? That's what the unbeliever says. But may we say as believers, it'll just be a little while now. 
And with that, with that uh, find refreshment and new courage to face whatever you should have for us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I'm ministering in his name. Give this bread to you. Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And please remember that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice.
Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. As we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing hymn number 402. Now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. seated.